There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. So what was the the story you were you were、uh, telling about Mr. Roden、uh, earlier? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. When we were doing the sports reporters together、um, in Bristol, he'd be there at like five a.m. But no, he、uh, he gave me a ride. He has a convertible. Yeah, we've been. You've been the okay, right? So the legendary convertible.、Uh, he offered me a ride because I was somebody who was taking the train to Meriden,、hmm. and Meriden is not close to Bristol. Bristol semi-famously has no train stations or airports. You have to go elsewhere, and so I told him, like a newbie, I was going to Meriden, and he was like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "I don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing."、That's、and so.、Funny. He drove me back to New York because we're both headed to Manhattan. I live in from, Manhattan from Bristol. From Bristol. Oh wow! So we had a nice drive in which the top was down. I recall it being like a beautiful blue day.、Uh, I didn't even register the convertible. So y'all were in the convertible from、oh. Bristol to New York. Okay. Oh yeah, that's a nice ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of time to catch up. I mean, it was great. But he's he was very generous then and is like a legend in this field. So it was a thrill for sure. For sure. Everyone, you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Deja Harrison, and we're recording from Pier 17 in New York City. This is my first time being here, and I'm so excited. Here in the studio with me, I have my co-host Tucker Tool from Morehouse. How you doing, Tucker? I'm, I'm very excited. We have a great show. We have Pablo Torre in the building. Whoop whoop whoop. <laughs> Uh, we don't have Mr. Roden on the podcast today, so we have to make him proud.、Um, but in the studio, we have Pablo Torre. You might know him from the ESPN show High Noon, which comically but thoroughly discusses the hottest topics in sports and news. Thank you, guys. You? Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for thank the you introduction. Thank you for being on the show. Deja and Tucker, you are sharing a microphone. I want people <laughs> yeah, to know that <laughs> because、yeah. you guys are being a very democratic <laughs> podcast, and I am. A king with my own mic on the other end of this table. Yes, yes.、Um, we just want to pick your brain about your career and how you got started. Let's do it. Yeah. So,、um, how did you get started?、Uh, we know you went to Harvard. So, yeah. Tell us about that. What did you do? I wanted to be a lawyer, and that was the appropriate reaction. Deja was a a, a semi shock <laughs> at hearing that because I am so glad to be doing what I'm doing now. But、mm-hmm. when I was in college, I was trying to go be a lawyer. I was somebody who. Always liked reading and writing and the humanities, and I was also somebody who wanted the stability of grad school and an office job somewhere. And I was always told that to do that, well, English majors, people with such interests, sociology—that was my major.、Um, you go do law school, and so I studied very, very hard for my classes and for the LSAT. And when it came time, the LSAT did not treat me well,、mm. and so. I was like, "Oh, the one thing I really wanted didn't happen." Like, if a genie came to me at that moment, this is like two thousand five, two thousand six, and said, "What do you want more than anything?" I would have wished for like a perfect LSAT score, and that is pathetic. It's really <laughs> pathetic. But anyway, so the point is, I didn't get the LSAT score. I had to figure out, okay, what if law school isn't the thing I do? I resolved, you know what? I'm going to study for the LSAT again. But in the meantime, I'm actually 
like interested in writing, like actual writing, like not fake law school writing. And so, so my, was it always sports at first, or was it news? Or so I was on the newspaper in college mm-hmm. and had been doing that as my main extracurricular passion this whole time. I just never thought of it as a real job because I was very just something to do, right? Just something to do, like the fun social thing, and like allowed me to write sports. So I was a sports writer the whole time, and. I ended up getting an internship at Sports Illustrated at SI.com. Okay. Um, and so basically in that period of existential confusion, I was like, okay, the sports writing thing at the very least can be a gap year before I go to law school. And what happened was I ended up taking a job as a fact checker at Sports Illustrated, bottom of the totem pole, mm. and just realized, oh, I love this. And I never left. And so here I am talking to you guys. That's a that's that's a great story. And I wanted to talk to you about the dynamic of Harvard. You know, Harvard isn't necessarily known per se for, you know, being a journalism school. I, I, I guess you could say that there is no journalism school. Right. So 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 how how do you um, feel you're representing, I guess, <laughs> Harvard from the sports perspective, um, knowing that. Not many. There aren't many sports journalists, you know, on TV and you know, writing art- articles that have you know come from Harvard. Yeah, it's a weird thing because I feel like the people who are in this business tend to come from big feeder schools and like Northwestern or yeah. Syracuse, and those schools have something in common. They have like actual really popular sports programs. Right. Harvard does not. Harvard has its own wonderful legacy and they're trying to get better at stuff and that i support them in that i i think sports is underrated weirdly at like (laughs) the ivy league level um but the point is like i didn't have like oh future pro athletes except that i randomly did jeremy lynn was a freshman when i was a senior and he was this one guy that i had written about in college who came back into my life in the most dramatic way possible when in 2012, I was at Sports Illustrated, and he was a Nick right. and the number one story. And Stephen A. was on the beat, and Frank Isola was on the beat, and they couldn't get what I had, which was actual connection to this guy. And so anyway, no, so random <laughs> yeah. fate and happenstance, like, I credit that for some of this, too. Like, Harvard was very great to me in all these ways, but the sports journalism thing, like, my parents still don't totally understand, like, wait a minute, what? How is it that you're doing this now? <laughs> and so I credit, weirdly, Jeremy Lin. Ryan Fitzpatrick was there when I was there. Like, enough sports were happening where I actually got some professional utility out of it um, on top of the actual, like, you know, learn how to write and report stuff, which they were fantastic with. So okay. were your parents cool with that transition from you um, being at Harvard and, you know, going to law school and then, you know, doing a career like writing? Because a lot of people don't look at that as a career. Sad to say. Yeah, my mom still thinks I'm going to be a doctor. Uh, <laughs> and I say that half jokingly, maybe now like three quarters jokingly as the TV show gets older. <laughs> yeah, no, no, she's she's my biggest fan. Yeah. Um, and I mean oh, that in so many ways, like she watches and supports, but also like she is an immigrant who wants the best for her son. I'm a first generation American. Like there's a high achieving like, no, we're we're here to you're going to be president. And I'm over here being like, but what about sports television? And for me, like the thing about my job, which I love, is I can communicate with America in a way that I really never 
thought about. Like, I have a platform to say things that I hope resonate with people, to talk about things differently. And I think to be very serious about it, like my parents appreciate that. They see that I'm putting my brain to work. And I think it's something that I take pride in. Like, the work that I do or strive to do, the work that you guys clearly strive to do, like, we want this to be rigorous and interesting and smart and funny, but also, you know, we are also in the toy department. So let's also have this understanding that, you know, fun and smart can kind of coexist. Right. And you talk about your platform and your background with your family being a first, you know, generation American and being Filipino. Personally, I know, I, I don't know about Deja, but I don't know many Filipino, you know, um, broadcasters or, or personalities on television, period, not just sports television. So how do you feel, you know, about being or being Filipino and just adding that diversity, adding that yeah. diversity yeah. to the network? I never appreciated it as much as um, it deserved. Like going into this, I mean, I, I did not realize I would be this sort of like representative for my ethnicity. Like I, I was naive about this. And because it's not just Filipinos, it's Asians, right? Asians. There's a representation thing. Like one of the problems um, that I have encountered when it comes to um, the Asian American experience is simply trying to get people to think of you in ways that are contrary to common stereotypes. This is shared across the non-white experience, of course. But for the Asian, I think, American experience in particular, it's, you know, it's funny. Like I have come to appreciate that part of making it in America, for me at least, has been doing things that people did not think I was supposed to do. And that is on some level very substantive, on some level superficial. Like I'm dealing with people's presumptions as much as I am dealing with like what's in my heart. Mm -hmm. um, but I take the responsibility seriously. Uh, and, and we, again, we do it in fun ways on the show. Like I am going to beat the drum for the random Filipino part Asian athletes who come through our, our world. However, I see that hearing from people and, and being talked to by young people, especially, I'm glad to be a model for someone who wants to maybe go and do something, anything like what I'm doing now. And that's incredibly cool and heavier than I ever really thought going into it. Right, that's us. We're trying to be like you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, hey, look. We're all squeezed into the studio together. This is yeah. how it starts. Yeah. Um, right. What's the transition? What was the transition from Sports Illustrated to, you know, where you are now? Yeah. So Sports Illustrated was where I learned to be a professional journalist. Mm -hmm. So I started as a fact checker, understood that as much as a great story is is this thing of art, it also is constrained by reality and the truth. And so I was very rigorous <laughs> fact checking like great writers and being like, oh, I I see how they do this. I can sort of see the architecture of a story um, on the reporting level that was incredibly helpful. And so there I began to pitch stories, got to do long form pieces and all of that. And so that's where I got trained up. And that's also where I started doing bits and pieces of TV. The first TV appearance I ever had um, was weirdly enough uh, on the O'Reilly factor. Oh, wow. During the 2008 Beijing Olympics, uh, they wanted somebody, Bill O'Reilly wanted somebody to talk about Michael Phelps and his swimming career. And I'm at Sports Illustrated. I'm not in Beijing. Everybody who knows anything about swimming is in Beijing. And so the call comes into the PR department and they're like, who can we send? And I'm like in my office just like doing nothing. And they're like, this is uh, a lot to ask of somebody who's never done this before. But like, do you feel comfortable 
going on the show and talking about Michael Phelps to Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, and so it was the most extreme introduction to television. But the point was, I, A, learned the value of listening face, which is to say that, like, oh, I'm going to be on camera when I watched it back. It was terrifying, of course. But when I watched it back, I was like, oh, I'm on camera and I'm not talking. I need to, like, listen. Like, I need to look like I'm listening. I need to perform listening because I, spoiler alert, didn't end up talking a lot to Bill O'Reilly about Michael Phelps. I was being lectured a lot about Bill O'Reilly's high school swimming career, which was <laughs> fascinating and unforgettable, um, but taught me a lot, quite honestly, um, about the mechanics of like performance and theater. Point is, I survived. And at that point, they just plugged me into all sorts of things. And so when I went to ESPN, there was the side goal of I'm actually going to try and do more and more TV. And so ESPN, the big difference was I'm going to do writing and reporting, but I'm also going to try and invest in my future as a TV person. And that's... Yeah, that's how this all started. Okay, okay. I wanted to ask you about the dynamic between you and your high new co-host, Bomani Jones. Bomani went to Clark, and I hear him talking about all those, you know, HBCU stories when he was in the dorm. Yep. And you went to Harvard. Two, you know, very big extremes. Well, not necessarily extremes, but they're they're very different in their own rights. Totally, yeah. And so I— can you just talk about that dynamic of how, you know, both of you guys now are being able to to represent that? Yeah. I mean, we have different experiences. I mean, Bomani, it's more than the mere fact that I went to one school and he went to another. I mean, he is the son of professors. He is somebody who is brilliant. He is somebody whose personal experience is from a different part of the country. He's from the South, right? His racial background obviously is different than mine. Um, and so for me, part of the fun we have is this, as we say on the show about some of our favorite athletes, like we like it when there is a cultural exchange, when we are learning about each other, having fun, talking about how we are different and also the same, like, cause underneath all of that, all of the like, oh, demographically, you guys are from different places. You guys have different interests, all that. It's true. But we're also like people who enjoy laughing at a lot of the same things. And we're people who find commonality in the fact that, look, we were, I would say, like, growing up, I'll speak for myself, and I think Bomani can can vouch for some of this, like, we were the smart kid growing up, and we had a particular experience of, like, okay, you know, we want to do this, and we're going to be ambitious, and we're going to say smart things, and all that. And so there's a common thread between both of us that kind of carries us through different parts of the country and then brings us back together. And so for me, we knew we were going to be a smart show. Um, the thing that I've enjoyed is our ability to enjoy each other. And that's something that I think every show that I enjoy is striving for, is that authentic, oh, you guys are enjoying spending time with each other, even as we are either arguing or pointing out differences or all that. The point is that the show brings us together.
sure you probably heard of the comments that um, Mariano Rivera made about President Trump. And I honestly was just, you know, a little confused um, by his statements. So first, I want to know, you know, what's what's your take on that? And then we know there's a fine line of talking about sports and politics. So uh, I want to know, how do you decipher that that line? Yeah, so I'll speak to this using the lens of something we talked about this week on the show. I thought about this through the lens of Manny Pacquiao. Okay, so let me take it outside of America, and I can safely kind of disentangle some of the bright lines and danger zones in all of this. So for me, Manny Pacquiao is somebody who is an incredible athlete, like Mariano Rivera, a Hall of Fame all-time great. However, Manny Pacquiao, my countryman from the Philippines, has also said some truly terrible things about the LGBTQ community. He has said that gay people are lower than animals. He has supported a regime in the Philippines that has been accused of and denies thousands upon thousands of killings in their war on drugs, like really serious stuff. And for me, watching the fight that he just had against Keith Thurman, it was really hard for me to disentangle that stuff. And it was hard as a human. It was hard because he is also, and this is a big difference from Rivera, uh, he's a... He's a senator. He's a literal senator in the Philippines. And so this notion of like, how can we disentangle sports and politics? Well, it's like this is true of so many different stories. And in the Pacquiao example, because he was a politician, it seemed obvious that this was something we could safely discuss and people would understand why. It's because he is a fighter and a politician. So how could you not hold him to account for his comments, even if his comments have nothing to do with how good he is as an athlete? And so to bring it now to Rivera, like, is it possible to really compartmentalize our feelings about somebody based on their greatness from their off the field perspective? It's hard. Like that's, that's a human struggle. It's really hard. And I think part of the reality is that we've all kind of made that compromise already. I don't think any of us are naive about some of the beliefs that people may have in sports. The difference is when what happens when someone is super vocal about it and what happens when those opinions almost demand a response from people's consciences, right? Because we're not talking about tax policy. We're talking about oftentimes issues of race and culture. And that's where it gets tricky because I understand the notion of, you know, let's stay away from talking about like healthcare for all. And all. it's like, fine, I get that. Like that's, but this stuff, this is, this is about being human. And so it's really hard. And for us talking about it through the lens of sports is our mandate, but you know, we are eyes and ears open. And I think we proceed Carefully from there, knowing that we're also speaking to an audience that is sometimes receptive to the viewpoints that we may personally have and sometimes not. And that's that's the dance that we have to do um, at a company that covers sports before anything else. You think us as journalists should be, you know, covering politics, you know, if it has to do with sports or do you think, you know. We just shouldn't. We should just leave it alone. No, I think there are ways. Look, when they intersect, it's very obvious, Mm -hmm. right? It's like green light. Like 
I'm talking about if you're a sports writer, right? Like that's the thought experiment. If you're a sports writer, when do you, so to speak, uh, diverge from the world of sports just to like call attention to something? Right. It's weird. Like part of my instinct on this is to say, I just want to be on the right side of history. I want to look back and think I did what I should have done and I spoke up for people who needed speaking up for. But at the same time, the unfortunate reality of the time we live in is that I'm also someone who is exhausted by politics a lot. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like there's a balance, right? Like on the one hand, I want to make sure I am principled. But on the other hand, like people are watching and listening oftentimes objectively to get away from that. And I'm not saying that we need to be naive, but it's just like knowing what the audience is there for and knowing that, okay, your job is to talk about sports. It's a hard argument to like counter. I'm like, you're right. That's what I'm here to do. And so look, is there a world in which we all like quit our jobs and become activists because this is all too much? I'm not going to rule that out. Like maybe there will be a time when that is – and maybe it's happened. But I think the compromise we've already all made by like trying to live our lives and do the jobs that we have and walk those lines of like acknowledging without engaging too much, that is – when we look back at this time, I think it will make sense why it was so complicated. And I also think that it will make sense as to why some people were like, you know what? You got to me through sports as opposed to I really appreciated when you blindsided me with something that had nothing to do with what I came to you for. I find that sports is actually a more useful vehicle to communicate with people than some people may give a credit for. I know you're a huge boxing fan, and there was some sad news the other day about Maxim Dadashev passing away yeah. uh, after his fight. And honestly, I've heard, you know, stories in the past, you know, in the 40s and 50s when that used to happen a little more frequently in boxing, but I've never heard of any, you know, stories of that since I've been alive. So what's what's your take on, on when that happens in the boxing ring and how, you know, that sh- sh- should be handled because it's such a difficult, you know, situation to deal with? It's super depressing and a reminder that, Boxing is a sport that is premised on violence. It promises violence. It advertises violence. And this is the logical conclusion when violence is your goal. And so it's funny, man. Like, and not funny. It's, it's sadly darkly funny. Um, like we talk about concussions in the NFL a lot in football, right? Boxing is literally concussions. Like that's the whole point. And so there's a reality of like what happens when you hit the human brain over and over and over again. Well, boxing was ahead of football when it came to neurological research that showed CTE, that showed neurological trauma. Boxing is in the 1920s, even earlier, there were studies that were like, look at what happens to boxers brains. And I think football's revelation is, oh, we're more like boxing than we realized. Like that's the news is like boxing has always been, I think, this incredibly dangerous, fatal game. Um, but for me... One other big difference that I think helps me think about this stuff, for a boxer, you know what you're getting into. And so there is this question of if there is full transparency, like this is what this is, here are the risks, here are the rewards, these are the dangers. If you sign up for that as a human adult, 
That is that is the sport. And that's kind of the most we can ask for. And otherwise, yeah, we have to live with our consciences and be like, this is darker than we like to admit. Do you see this sport changing? I mean, it's getting out of hand. It's getting out of hand. Do you see it changing? Yeah, I mean, look, it's been out of hand, I think, in this way forever. Forever, yeah. And I think true to the point that you're raising, you know, there is an issue when the people who box come from historically, broadly, very poor areas. Mm -hmm. People who want to be boxers are not coming from the same families that produce quarterbacks, broadly speaking. That right there is, is a statement. That right there. And it's, it's, I, I think of it every time I do a boxing story. Like people coming from poverty with a certain level of desperation, they fight for money. Like think about that, right? Like who fights for money? People who right. need money, not people who like have time to kill, right. you know? Like, and so what will change? It would be great if boxing had, I don't know, a union of some kind, but that seems very hard when, like, boxing is very decentralized and messy and, like, corrupt, mm -hmm. frankly. And when the people who are boxers are themselves, like, they're desperate, I don't know if if that's really going to change. And his own his, his opponent even said that he felt he didn't even know how to feel because he killed a man and that wasn't even his, you know— he was just trying to go in there and win a fight. That's what he said. He was trying to go in there and put, you know, some food on the table for his family. And he ended up killing a man. So, I mean, when you talk to boxers about technique, right, what they're trying to do when they throw any punch, the most basic punch, they are trying to put their hand through someone's head. And they're not doing it at the level of like, you know what, I'm going to put my hand through your head, but not enough to kill you. They're all going all out. And it's just a consequence of what happens when you when you strive for violence. And that to me is that's where it's such a moral conundrum. If you're the person who does it like I think we were all aware of the risks. I think we were all OK with this being an option. But reality is different from like a hypothetical. And the reality of it is tragic. Very tragic. Our thoughts are with both fighters. We're going to leave the conversation there. All right, Pablo, we just want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your your schedule to speak to us. And um, please let the people know where to follow you, where to find you, and what time to watch High Noon. Tucker, thank you. Deja, thank you. I've been waiting for the opportunity to promote myself. This is... <laughs> At Pablo Torre on Twitter, at PS Torre on Instagram for all the kids who are on Instagram. And uh, High Noon is on every day at 4 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. So please check us out. We value the youth of America. You are our future. Please don't let us down. Well, we, we greatly appreciate that. And you can follow me on Instagram at Deja D. Harrison, D-E-J-A-D-H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. And that's all the time we have for today. If there's anything you'd like for us to cover or if you want, want to leave us a comment or tweet us at hashtag the undefeated or at the undefeated hashtag the Roden fellows. You can also find me on Instagram at Tuck T 52. Thanks for listening to the Roden fellows podcast. This show is produced by our wonderful producer, Aaron Matthewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster Brasby and ESPN digital audio content team. I'm Tucker Tool, and I've been your co-host. I'm Deja Harrison, and...
Get all of the HBCU 468 podcast as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Rose by subscribing to the Undefeated on the listening tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast. And don't forget to make the Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great day, everyone.